Pellicle is proudly sponsored by Lochran Brewers Select, a seventh-generation family-owned business based near Dundalk in Ireland. In 2014, James Lochran established Lochran Brewing Stores in order to supply high-quality brewing ingredients to the burgeoning beer industries in the UK, Ireland and mainland Europe. The business expanded in 2022 when ingredient wholesaler Brewers Select joined the Lochran family, expanding its suppliers within the brewing ingredient and raw material industry. Some of those suppliers include Crosby Hops, a family-owned hop farm in Oregon, USA, Baird's Malt here in the UK, and industry-leading yeast producer Lalamond. Thanks to their support, we're able to pay more writers, photographers and illustrators than ever before, and invest in special projects like this podcast. Thanks again to Lochran Brewers Select, who you can find out more about by visiting brewersselect.co.uk forward slash pellicle. And now... Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back once again to the Pellicle Podcast with me, Matthew Curtis. Today, I've got a bumper-length interview with Theo Frain, the founder of Dea Brewing Company in Cheltenham here in the UK, and it's an absolutely brilliant interview if you've ever wanted to learn more about this brewery that's taken the UK by storm over the past decade or so. But first, as the band Stained once sang so eloquently, it's been a while. You may have noticed it's been about five months since I last published a podcast episode, and I have many good reasons for that, but the main one is that I have been writing my third book, which was published on the 18th of October. It's called Manchester's Best Beer, Pubs and Bars. It's been published by the Campaign for Real Ale, who published my last book, Modern British Beer, and it's out now. It's a guide to about 185 pubs, bars, restaurants, bottle shops across the greater Manchester area from Stockport all the way up to Rochdale and across to Wigan. And then the meat of it really is central Manchester, where about 72 pubs in the book are featured. I'm really pleased with it. It's a different book to Modern British Beer, which was a very personal exploration into how I felt beer had changed over the last two decades. That was a very philosophical book. This book isn't that at all. This book is meant to be functional. And while it's very much written in my voice and style, which involves putting a lot of myself into it, it's more of a guide. It's like I'm accompanying you on a massive pub crawl or beer trail, as I like to call them in the book itself, across Greater Manchester. And I spent the last 18 months researching this. And when I say research, I mean going to pubs, taking notes, taking photos and trying to work out which pubs to include, which was challenging because like any book, I had a word count. I had a length to hit and a rough size I wanted it to be. So it's not every single pub in Greater Manchester. It's very much what I like. And then the last six months were spent writing it, putting it down, figuring out what order it should go in and how the city should be laid out, which in Manchester, Greater Manchester, a metropolitan area very much defined by its borders and boundaries. You know, you make sure you call it Stockport or Salford when you're there. It's not Manchester. That was challenging. 
That's why I'm about to present to you an interview that I actually recorded in November 2022. But don't worry, it still sounds fresh and as relevant as ever. It's quite a general intro to Theo and Dea Brewing Company. And I think it's a really good way of getting back into this podcast. So yes, there you go. My new book, Manchester's Best Beer Pubs and Bars, is out now. I'd really love it if you bought a copy, whether you live in Manchester or you want to visit what I think is the best city for beer in the UK, as the book explains. And if you do pick up a copy, then if you can leave me a little review online where you bought it from, I'd really appreciate it. The book is available in lots of major retailers, including Waterstones, in the Greater Manchester area. But the best place to buy it on if you want to support the publisher and myself is direct from the camera web shop. So if you go to the camera website, you can pick up a copy of the book and you're supporting a small independent publisher and a freelance writer in the process. Now let's get into this interview. Dea Brewing Company was established in 2015 by Theo Frain in the town of Cheltenham. Now, I've been to Cheltenham before, and while there is some stuff going on there, it's not like an amazing beer town like, say, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield, Liverpool, that kind of thing. But it does have some stuff going on. Crucially, it has people interested in beer. And this part, the gateway to the West Country, if you will, Theo's home is where he decided to set up his business, initially starting out quite small, After obtaining his master's in brewing and distilling from Heriot Watt University up near Edinburgh, it has since over the last few years grown not just in stature but in reputation. They're perhaps best known for their flagship beer, Steady Rolling Man, a hoppy, hazy, juicy beer that could be described as maybe a gamma ray killer. If you've ever drank Beavertown gamma ray, That certainly used to be a pretty spectacular beer. These days, hmm, let's just say it's not anymore. But Steady Rolling Man has maintained quality and consistency. And this extends into all of what Dea does in terms of its beers, in terms of its incredibly striking and obvious brand image, in terms of the tap room. Actually, it has two tap rooms in Cheltenham on the site of its brewery, really near Cheltenham Spa train station. So they're nice and easy to get to. But what I quite admire is that they have their big main tap room which is fantastic and well worth visiting. But sometimes they have special events or DJs playing there and they've kept their original brewery tap room, which is just literally around the corner on the same industrial estate, which has a cosier, more intimate setting. So they've always got a space available if you just want to come and have a quick beer. And next to that second tap room, they also have a mixed fermentation brewing facility, a small kit, lots of wooden barrels for maturing beer to be blended and bottled at a later date. Perhaps a footnote in what Dea does in terms of size and scale, but no less significant in terms of its deliciousness. Another fascinating point, actually, before we head into the interview is, like me, Theo is someone who spent a lot of time in Fort Collins, Colorado. He actually did an internship after his master's at Odell Brewing in Fort Collins and worked under a great man who works for Odell called Scott Dorsch, which is a tiny tenuous link, but it enabled me to ask Theo some interesting questions about what inspired him and motivate him to turn Dea into what it is today. Anyway, it's a really long interview, so I won't waffle on, I won't do my usual ramble, but the podcast is back now. 
I have time, I have capacity. I've got about 10 episodes recorded, you'll be pleased to know. And when I have time at the start of another episode, I will certainly get into some longer rants like some of you have missed. I know you've been asking for them. Until then, this is Theo Frain of Dea Brewing Company in Cheltenham. Please enjoy this interview. Welcome back to Test Match Special with me, Matthew Curtis. I'm sat here with Theo Frain of Dea Brewing Company here in Cheltenham. Theo, how are you? Very well, thanks, Matt. Very good. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good. It's the remarkably the first time I've been to visit your brewery, um, and wow, it, you've grown quite a bit. I mean, people might know you through your your hoppy IPAs and your core pale ale steady rolling man but this brewery is i mean there's two tap rooms two brewing sites um you've grown quite a lot like what's happened how, how have you got to this place where you you're, you've become this sort of you should call yourself a small brewery earlier but there's always yeah. there's, there's a mid-sized brewery here kind of emerging like yeah like, definitely i think we've um the last two years have been a lot of growth for us so when we were in our old site, which we just went to, which is now the Mixed Fern Tap Room and the Mixed Fern Space, where we make the Mixed Fermentation beers. Um, when we moved to this site, we had a good following. We had a decent-sized brand and stuff like that. So we were ready for an ups, you know, upscale in production and ready to grow. Um, but we probably didn't realise how much demand there was there. And we knew we wanted to move to, say a 40 hectolitre brew kit because that was seemed like the natural step for us to be able to produce volume um, but also have uh, the flexibility to produce all different styles and the one-off beers, the um, the different styles that we weren't able to produce over there such as lagers or more dark beers or whatever it is. So yeah, we've grown a lot but I would still say it's very much um, the demand the product has necessitated the growth and what we do and fundamentally what we're about hasn't really changed through that growth we produce 50 percent of our production of steady rolling man that's always been the same pretty much from the start that's the beer that's grown the whole brewery um but we still do the specials the the different stuff and i think people know us for different things as well which is really cool so that's really interesting so steady rock you know when we were touring the brewery you said steady rolling manual core pale ale is 50% of your production mm-hmm. but that's you say that's been the case pretty much the whole time yeah I mean we started with just that beer so for a period of time that was literally the only beer that we were making um, so yeah that's always been our most popular beer I guess the beer that we're most proud of the beer that people know the best um, yeah it's, it's allowed us to grow that beer without that we wouldn't be this size uh, and we wouldn't have this growth potential as well because you've seen the site and the the brewery that we put in not just the brew kit but the canning line and the you know the warehouse and stuff of like that we can grow more and that's just pretty much because of steady running man fantastic but i mean it's it's amazing to see how that that beer has powered you through and it's what 2013 you got started it was 2015 but 2015 was a year that we didn't have a physical site we didn't mm. have our own brew kit so i was contract brewing or gypsy brewing at a few local breweries and it was um 
it was pretty scrappy and the product, the beer wasn't where we wanted it to be. The breweries that we were brewing at were not, um, they were decent breweries in their own right, but they, do, they weren't producing the styles that I wanted to make. And that became pretty apparent that we weren't going to be able to produce the style, the, the, the really hoppy American pails that we wanted to make. We weren't going to be able to do that on like traditional cast style, four barrel, six barrel, 10 barrel brew kits with open top fermenters and all that sort of stuff. So it became pretty clear that we needed our own space and our own brew kit. And I'd almost say we didn't have anything of that. It was just myself and my mum <laughs> going around, you know, brewing at places. So we didn't have the, the backing to actually go to and do proper contract brewing. And I felt like we really needed our own brew kit, our own space. And with that, you know, the tap room was an obvious thing for us. And yeah, we, we, we wanted to have our own space, our own kit to really hone in on what we were trying to do. So 2015 was a bit of a learning process. We started the company, we brewed some Steady Running Man. It wasn't quite where we wanted it to be. Um, so 2016 is really when we kicked off yeah. properly and we, we started, we moved in in uh, January 2016 to the old site that we went round and then we started installing the brew kit which was, as we discussed, from Harbour and those other breweries and pretty basic manual kit but it did the job for what we wanted and then we could actually make what we wanted to make and we can actually start to gain a presence. Um, so that was important. Prior to that though, you did some brewing education. You went to Harriet Watt and studied a master's in brewing and distilling. I believe yeah. uh, you had a course mate uh, yes. by the name of Johnny Hamilton, yeah. uh, my, my Pellicle co-founder. Yeah. Um, what made you decide to go to, to university and study brewing? I, so I was actually at Edinburgh, uh, under, I was an undergraduate at Edinburgh before doing Harriet Watt. So I completed a, um, a four-year course in history at Edinburgh University. And so you went from history to brewing yeah, and distilling, yeah, exactly. which is like an engineering degree, basically. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I, I missed out on the, um, yeah, when I was at Harriet Watt, I really felt that <laughs> in, terms, in terms of not having a science degree or an engineering degree, because there were people like Johnny and many others who are a lot more clued up on, on brewing, for one, but then also actually the processing and um, dealing with fluid mechanics and things like that. But um, yeah, I just... When I was at um, Edinburgh, I, I started home brewing uh, probably two years before the end of my course and just became, as I think a lot of people do when they're getting into the industry, just completely obsessive about everything. So it was home brewing, tasting beers, um, getting really excited about everything to do with beer. So I spent a couple of years, or maybe a year, just like getting really, really, really into it and... Um, it was from there that I went to uh, well, I went to Odell in the summer of that. Um, I was going to ask, how did that happen? Because obviously I, I've spent a lot of time in Fort Collins, but you, you lived out there for a few months and, yeah. and brewed under a, a wonderful chap called Scott Dorsch at yeah. Odell. Um, yeah. But how did you end up in, in Fort Collins? Yeah, I, was, I, was, I, I did, I did a, uh, some work experience at Theakson's and that was through like a, a family friend connection and they were like, yeah, you know, if you're serious about it, go do some work experience with Theaksons. And so it was, it was very much like old school, traditional brewery. And at the time, all I wanted to drink, homebrew, talk about was like 
the most hoppy pale ales and stuff like that. So they were very much like, uh, shut up and go make, and clean some cups. Makes it all peculiar. Yeah, yeah, or just go and, go and clean some cups. When you do work experience and internships and stuff like that, you basically, you kind of do everything, which is really important. But you, like for me, I ended up, I, I probably did a week of like washing casks, racking casks, being around a brewery. And not, I probably didn't learn that much, but it was still really interesting. And I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And it was like, okay, this is really cool. I, you know, I'm really passionate about this, but I like the professional environment as well because there's a big difference between homebrewing and there's some amazing homebrewers out there. I definitely was not one, but there are people who really know what they're doing homebrewing-wise and they, they, they do that and then they have their own thing going on. But I was very much... You know, got, once I got into that uh, professional production environment, I was like, "This is this is what I really love," and so then did that. And then they had a multiplier at Thiessen's called Fawcett Malt. Met them, Fawcett's for some reason uh, they do really good specialty malt, but they supplied a lot of the American breweries. They got in touch. Uh, they, they got me in touch with uh, uh, Doug O'Dell, and I was you know sent him a random email saying, "Can I come over for?" A month for work experience or whatever and he was like yeah why not and ended up spending two or three months there and while I was there I got to travel quite a bit so obviously I went to Colorado went to the east coast got to try a lot of beers that at the time were very formative for me so I went to Hill Farmstead in 2015 I think which mm-hmm. was obviously I don't know it would have been number one on rate beer and but it was still small and they didn't really have a tap room and I managed, you know, talk to Sean Hill and um, there were other similar experiences. I mean, even just drinking Odell's beers were like very, very important for me. And there was loads of experiences there which just made me realise how, how, how a production or a professional brewery could run. But then the timing of what I was doing, even though I'd done Harriet Watts, so I had a decent understanding of brewing process and equipment and stuff like that. And it's a really good course and it's a really good degree. And a lot of people on that course are really honed in on starting their own brewery. So you do learn a lot, like, you know, chatting to Johnny or Archie Village, who went and started Villages, or Cosmo, who's been, you know, he one of the high end, uh, higher up brewers at uh, Beaver Town, Davis Hebrew, but then went to Bassland. Like, those sort of people, they're all, you know, everyone's in the same course and everyone's wanting the same thing. I remember at the start of Harriet Watt, they said, who here wants to uh, start their own brewery? And there's 60 people on our course and pretty much every single person put their hand up. And I very much, I, I felt I was low down in that pecking order in terms of experience and knowledge and stuff like that. But I did, you know, I, I worked hard, studied hard, whatever. And I had this big sense coming back from America that this was the time to start a brewery because the UK was on that real cusp of, and that real wave of um, really good breweries starting and taking root in the market and stuff like that so I, I knew I wanted to do something quickly yeah it was really just exploding at that time yeah and it's really interesting so so when were you in Fort Collins sort of that was 2015 2015 end of 2015 and I came back and uh, no that would have been that would have been 2014 sorry and then I came back in 2015 and, and registered the company in February or something like that that's a really interesting time because um I always think, uh, especially at that time, the beers of Colorado were so bitter. Like mm-hmm. Dale's Pale Ale, Odell IPA, um, Avery, their IPAs. They were, they were these big, booming... Um, they called them mountain beers. Now mountain IPA is a whole separate thing. But um, 
the East Coast at the time was when, you know, I went to New York in 2012 before Other Half even existed, but mm -hmm. in 2014, 2015, it was just going through, you know, Maine had been this incubator for all these hazy beers. But I'm interested in hearing what were the beers, you know, because hazies are certainly how you establish your identity with, mm -hmm. with Dea. Um, what were the beers you were drinking? You know, what made you go, I want to try and make this? What made you go, I want to make Steady Rolling Man? What was the, the beer that was like, holy mm. shit, I, I need to try and make mm. something like this? Yeah, I think it was quite a mixture of different stuff. And I think also when we first started, it wasn't like we knew exactly what we wanted that beer to be. I knew to some extent, I was trying to pretty much take the best aspects of certain beers and then, and then make the pale ale that I was really wanting to put our brewery's name behind and make it a flagship beer. Because we knew we wanted a flagship pale ale. That was, our, that was our whole thing for our first year of production. So um, Edward from Hill Farmstead was a big one. Um, it was incredibly hoppy and juicy, but then also a drinking beer as well, like a proper pale ale that you can drink in a pint. Um, so I remember also having sense when I was out there that the UK beer scene, I'd always looked at America being so far ahead, mm, which, it, which it was in terms of volume and the amount of breweries and the amount of good breweries out there was just sort of mind-blowing. You know those bars in Colorado, you go to like a random bar and there's 20 draft lines and all the beer is high quality. Yeah. And thinking, especially from this area, because I grew up around, not in Cheltenham, but about half an hour away from here, you couldn't, I couldn't go to a, a shop or a bar and drink what I would consider like a high quality beer. Mm. It would just be cast beer in the pub, which ironically now is like... I mean, I've just been in the brewery and you were wrecking <laughs> casks, so... Which is, but also what we liked... Like if I go out now drinking, I go to the pub and drink cast beer. But back then it was very much like, I remember there was one wine shop. I lived in a place called Sirencester and there was one wine shop which did used to have Colonel and maybe Beavertown. And then they stopped selling it because no one was buying it, which is just... That's it's, mad. Yeah, it's mad. And I remember thinking it was a good thing to be starting an area with not that much of that style beer going on. But back to the point, when I was in America, I remember also thinking the Colonel beers... Beavertown beers, the beers that I was drinking, they weren't far off what the Americans were doing, maybe on a par with them, but there just wasn't the, the amount of those beers or the amount of those beers available to people. So it was very much like Colonel Pales or Colonel's IPAs, they're definitely, the quality is there. Mm. It's just the, the accessibility is not there. And that was a big sense that I, I had coming back. And um, I remember feeling quite proud of like what we have in England, even though I was looking to America the whole time. Mm. Um, so Colonel was obviously a massive influence. And then Odell was a massive influence. Hill Farmstead, kind of everything what they're about. Um, and then when we started the brewery, more and more so the East Coast breweries. And that was more through trading their beer because um, at the time obviously you couldn't get Treehouse or Trillium or other half here in the UK so I would trade it for whatever we had like Canteon or whatever it might be I used to, I used to trade Crooked Stave because I used to go to Colorado a lot uh, yeah. for, for cans of Heady Topper yeah exactly <laughs> that, that was kind of where it was at and then we would try the, I would try those beers Gareth joined pretty early on actually so he was Hebrew your Hebrew Gareth Hebrew yeah. Gareth yep yeah. so he was he was Hebrew at Gloucester Brewery and he came over he sent me an email pretty much as soon as we started it was like 
that's great that another brewery is starting in this area that's wicked. Can I come and have a look? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then we, you know, got chatting and he was like, can I just, I'll come, I'll come over here if that's all right. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So we started working <laughs> so you together. So po- you poached him? Yeah, yeah. Well, he poached himself, I think. <laughs> um, so then we started trying beers. We were, we were very, we were very young. We were pretty naive and we were very prepared to try anything at that mm-hmm. stage. And our, what we were trying to achieve could change quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And so we were quite impressionable. So we'd try different stuff and we'd be like, well, wh- why don't we try that? Why don't we try this? And I love that the early stages are so, the early stages of us were so interesting because someone, you know, Garrett could try a beer and say, what, what, you know, what's going on in here? What, what, you know, why can't we do this? You know, and then we'd just be obsessive about the process and sourcing the ingredients and stuff like that. So I take it formulated in the first couple of years through trying all those East Coast beers, saying this is why. This, sorry, this is what we are going to do. This is what we're going to make. But once we were on those sort of trails, we were very clear about what we were trying to do. But it was um, it was pretty exciting times. And let's talk about Steady Rolling Man, because that's so central to your identity as a brewery. Um, you know, where, when you said you didn't get it right for the, for the initial period of the brewery, but when, when did that click for you? When did you go, oh yeah, shit, this is our core beer. This, this is the beer we're going to base a brewery on. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, where did you get the name from? What inspired it? So the name was there from the start, actually. The name was like from an old Robert Johnson song and... Um, it definitely has that in the branding, doesn't it? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the, the exactly. Blue, the bluesman. And yeah, the blues, yeah. and we, we based all the branding off of that. And, and then I think for the first three years, all the, all the names basically came from songs and lyrics and stuff like that. So it's very influenced by music. Um, uh, but the brand is really developed. Like, it's really massively developed. And Tom Hobson, who's our artist, who's been with us from the start, he, um, me and him worked together on everything. I say... We work together. I do the names and give the design briefs. He does all the magic. He's the guy who sort of drives... He's very much our brand, really. He's the guy who drives everything brand-wise. Um, so, Steady, we knew we wanted American Pale Ale um, as our core beer. And then it was the idea was to create the best American Pale we possibly could. I would say without compromise, but then we wanted it to still be drinkable, accessible. It, back then in 2016, 2017, you weren't thinking about like double dry hop pails or oat cream pails and all that sort of stuff. It was very much like a very intense, juicy American style pale ale, but not, but still something that's drinkable. And I, I think the best thing about that beer, you know, in hindsight is that you can give it to people who are not massively into beer and it's still a drinkable beer and it's still something that you can just say, yeah, it's a nice pint. But then people who are really into beer say, like, that is a really high-quality parallel. So that was, that was our goal from the start and I think we have achieved that with that beer and that's why I think it's a, um, a staple uh, for us. You've really nailed the trick there. Like, if you can hand a beer and, and it doesn't make people, like, recoil... Yeah. And I think Steady is interesting because I want to get into, like, the Dea flavour, the softness, but we'll talk about that in a bit when we open this beer that's sort of sat, like, on the table. And, mm. like, that's my hint. Let's, yeah. let's get into this beer. Yeah, yeah. 
so yeah I think that's the the trick um, finding that beer that straddles the line between uh, entrant and enthusiast because I think a lot about beer flavored beer like if you say to someone this is a beer flavored beer and sometimes I want a beer flavored beer mm-hmm. like a, a best bitter mm-hmm. um, and you can give that to someone who is uh, doesn't drink a lot of beer and say yeah that tastes like beer enthusiasts want flavor they want complexity but they want something they can drink all the mm-hmm. time and steady is really interesting because it is one of those beers you know i think we talked about fine ales yarl earlier mm-hmm. it's a good reference point for like a flagship beer track mm-hmm. sonoma mm-hmm. but it's actually really hard to find that sweet spot right mm-hmm. and i think i think steady is definitely one of those beers that, that found that sweet spot and i think something that's really interesting about uh Dea beers is is they have a character of their own, a deaness. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I can describe it. And there's, I think very few modern breweries have beers that taste like of the brewery. St. Mars of the Desert, I mentioned them when we were walking around the brewery earlier. Yeah. They taste like their beers. Mm-hmm. But your beers taste like Dea beers. Yeah. Um, and the first thing you showed me in the brewery was a, was a water treatment facility. Mm-hmm. So how important was integrating that or, or creating that deaness? Mm-hmm. It was that a deliberate attempt to do something with the flavour of the beers? Yeah, it was very deliberate. It was very much um, something that we wanted to do. But I think, as you say, it's very difficult to do that. And I think, I don't know that the, the, there's so many different factors in that. But from like a purely technical point of view, we definitely wanted a soft palate, soft water profile. We wanted it to be juicy, but not sweet. Um, so we were very focused on water treatment very focused on absolutely nailing our finishing gravities to make sure that the residual sweetness in the beer matched up with the bitterness we were aiming for and stuff like that. So we were very, very particular about things. Um, and I think we did create a profile in Steady Body Man that became synonymous with us as a brewery. And Steady then became the launching pad for everything, everything else we did. Hoppy started with that profile in terms of water treatment, our yeast as well. So for the first year, we used dried yeast. Um, we pretty quickly moved on to a wet English yeast, um, which massively changed the beers in our eyes. Um, probably not as noticeable to the consumer, but it was very, it was like a, uh, a, a key change in our direction. And for a small brook, we were producing hardly any beer. And managing an in-house yeast is, is quite... Uh, um, time-consuming and the hygiene aspects of it and stuff like that are quite intense. But, um, yeah, Gareth's background in... Um, he did, like, microbiology and stuff like that, so he's very into all that sort of mm. stuff. And, he, you know, we, we took big pride in the fact we had an in-house wet yeast early on and big pride in the fact that we really cared about our water treatment. So I think we, we, do, we now have... An, um, we've you know through generations we've banked that yeast so we have our own sort of uh dare yeast that we get every time for a pitch which i think is a big key component of the mouthfeel and the sort of esters that is produced in our pails and ipas um we were just so deliberate about the beer and what we want uh, in terms of running man and what we we're trying to create and that then gave the launching pad to the ipas the double ipas so there's still a notifiable sort of lineage between them, even though Steady is a more sessionable, um, probably a bit drier than our IPAs, um, more drinkable, etc. But I do think that was a, um, it was a, it was a very key, it was a very considered thing that we were trying to do from the start. 
but actually doing it is is difficult like you say i would also say there are intangible factors around why beers become important and big and stuff of that there's the branding there's the way people talk about it um which is harder to define but those you know those beers just just uh, strike a chord with the consumer and there's nothing better than one beer drinker telling another drinker you've got to try this or you've got to have this because that's the best pr you could ever have so we got a lot of that at the start and let's talk about the branding and um you know use a lot of emojis on mm-hmm. social media that there's there's a, there's a funness to it and mm-hmm. um there are murals painted all around the brewery but you seem to have a, a an identity where did that come from i mean you've got the mountains as the main logo mm-hmm. so where where did that start so the mountains which we don't really use that much anymore the mountains are originally from a place in switzerland that i'd been to and just I guess name. I would have said it was Colorado, but yeah. there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like naming the brewery and like trying to get imagery that we wanted to have on the the original stuff was basically stuff from my from my childhood, which I'd sort of picked up along the way. And then, what, what does Dea mean, by the way? So Dea is actually the English spelling of a place in Mallorca, mm-hmm. which I'd been to growing up. And both the mountains and the the place Dea were like the two places that I loved going to and felt were just I don't know so remarkable that I wanted the company that I was creating to live up to what they were about um, but there's also other layers to it in terms of dare is meaningless and therefore we become the meaning for it as opposed to being hemmed in by anything in terms of naming and stuff like that we didn't want a location name um, we didn't want like hop in our name and stuff like that um, it had to be something that became we became the meaning for that um, like it's good that you don't know what dare is or the story behind it because you know dare as a brewery which i think is really important um but the branding obviously has developed a lot and that's you know that's through my relationship with tom who's our artist who is full-time has been full-time for quite a long time doesn't actually work at the brewery he lives in belgium but um he is amazing um amazing person incredible to work with he's an artist he's not a graphic designer so all the all the cans are hand-drawn by him pretty much all the designs are hand-drawn obviously the formatting and stuff like that is done on the computer but he's given us a aesthetic which is which is very much us and even though we can switch between different styles and stuff like that i think there's still consistency and there's a definitely a consistency within the core range and then outside of that, we can do some pretty weird stuff. Um, but at the same time, I think there is a consistency of, of, of what we are as a brand and his ability to embody kind of what we're trying to uh, portray as we've grown with the people we have here. And we very much see as a collective, it's not about me. And yeah, he's, he's, he's done an amazing job. Where did the crocodiles come from? That seems to become an important part of your identity. Very important part of the identity. The crocodiles, I really need to like um, come up with a story for the crocodiles or like an earnest uh, heartfelt. Or do, or do you? It just, yeah. it just, it just yeah, happened. Yeah. Crocodiles just happened. We, um, the crocodiles came from the original Into the Haze label. So I had a design brief for Tom. For some reason, I want crocodiles holding balloons that were hops and then he had said he'd seen a mural in london somewhere with this crocodile and said like yeah this is great and then we put the crocodile on the original into the haze label 
which weirdly into the haze doesn't have any crocodiles on it now. But then we just started um, doing these crocodiles on a lot of different labels to the extent now where it's obviously synonymous with us as a brand. Um, and it is our logo pretty much, although we interchange different logos and stuff like that. But yeah, crocodiles, it was quite random, to be honest. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's good. And that, that all makes sense for like a small brewery, like that 2016 brewery that was very small. We went to the, now the mixed firm tap room and brewery mm-hmm. where you started, but you've scaled up significantly. I mean, we're in an office with this nice marble table and, and it's, it's big. So how do you take that frivolity uh, and, and scale up to, you're on a 40 hectolitre system now brewing um, twice a day, four days a week, or three times a day, four days yeah. a week. So how do you maintain that frivolity and, and, and day-ness? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, you know, I've coined a phrase, I might as well stick with it. As you have expanded into a bigger brewery, how do, how do you keep it real? I think that's, that's a really good question. That's really... Um Something that we, that's on my mind a fair amount because, you know, there's a lot of challenges, especially the last two years. So you've got COVID and then this year with the price increases and just the general economic situation, it's like almost having two hats on at the same time because now we employ 40 people. We have a massive responsibility to those people. We also have, we want to be profitable as a business each month etc etc we've got bigger volume doing stupid stuff is needs to be considered like we can't just um can't, can't just can't just throw cats out of a helicopter exactly yeah exactly <laughs> to name a, to yeah. reference silliness yeah or pretend that um yeah we won't go there <laughs> um but yeah so it's, it's it is a really big challenge because basically you know it's the artistic element of the brewery and also the the creative element in the brewery, but then it, you know we've got to sell beer and we've got to be a brewery that people trust as well. So it's a very it's it's a fine balancing act. I think the way we do events and the artistic elements of the brewery, the tap rooms, the experiences that we do create in the brewery in terms of the tap room, which is a massive part of the brewery, um, both revenue wise, but also just like the heart and soul of what we're about, and the way we present. The, the brand and the company outside in terms of events and um, and I think we do portray what we're about in terms of an artistic creative company when we go out and about but then there's also the, the reality of um, we, we are a business we're not you know we're, we're very structured um, in the way that we work so it's a constant balancing act that's almost like an epithet for brewing in a way where you have to if you are going to create something creative um, you can do something new. You still need the structure. You still need to be able to know what parameters to hit in a beer to allow that beer to be a good beer. So that's, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good question. Mm. And I, I think I'm, I'm probably more on the creative side, I guess, of the company. But at the same time, I'm very like aware of what we need stru- you know, in terms of whatever structures we need to make the creative work. I think it's interesting because, you know, it, we talk about these beer experiences we had in 2014. That's almost a decade ago. And we've all had a bit of fun. Uh, but, you know, we, we talked about how 
you know, me being freelance is, is, is as much being an accountant as, as a writer. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that's a very small scale thing compared to you as a brewery. But it's interesting how you talked about how you have 40 employees, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. But also that tap room is a focal point. But you have more people coming to that tap room now. So there's an expectation. Mm-hmm. Steady has to taste the same all the time now or, mm-hmm. or close to an approximation of steady. You can't fuck it up. Yeah. So it's all, it, it, is it maturity, isn't it? It's just about yeah. figuring stuff out. It's a maturity, but then it's also not going away from what made the brand what it is. Mm. And a lot of that is internal as well. Mm. So not change, you know, you're not compromising what you, started with and you know I said at the start when me and Gareth tried something we'd be like well let's do this let's replicate this I still think we have that um, mentality but it'd be more considered now Mm. and I think back then there were more we took more risks definitely beer wise but we gained so much so quickly whereas now I think we, we still it's important to take those risks but we need to be considered with them as well. I think, you know, anecdotally, when I was having a tour of the brewery earlier and Gareth ran off and then ran, ran back with a glass of, like, you've got to try this Baltic porter. Yeah, it wasn't even finished. I don't, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know why he gave it to us. But that was really interesting to me because, you know, as someone who visits a lot of breweries, yes, he had that glint in his eye, he was excited. Yeah, yeah. But the beer was a Baltic porter, which is, you know, it's a lagered porter. It's quite mm. serious. It's, it's not as exciting as a hazy IPA. Mm. But to see a head brewer be like, oh, you've got to try our Baltic porter. Yeah, you, know? Yeah. you know, I think that's, that shows that, you that, you know, it's measured. That, that as a yeah. style is almost a metaphor for like, yes, we're Dea, we are the Crocodile Brewery. Yeah. But we also, um, you know, have, we're looking after employees and customers now it's yeah it, we've got, it's responsibility isn't it 100 percent. i think it's also interesting on the beer stuff because we really one of the amazing things about us being able to move into the space and grow is we do have the capacity to brew other styles and we do we can challenge ourselves with other things so we brew lagers we brew cast beers obviously the mixed firm side has really been a massive um uh area that we put a lot of effort and, and energy into and i think it's very interesting being so known for IPAs and pale ales because that's what we wanted. We wanted to become a brewery that is, is synonymous with juicy beers. However, we also want to make our other styles of beers as good or on a par with those other beers. So, you know, I think, you know, we, we'd really love our mix firm to be considered as some of the best mix firm in the UK. Um, and I do think the beers that we're making are incredible. And same with the lagers, like we pre- we brew quite a lot of different lagers, and we want them to be considered, um, you know, up there with the best lagers in the UK. And that's quite a difficult balance as well, because once you become known for certain things and certain styles, it can be difficult to break through. And there's there's certain breweries who can do that, and that to me is always the breweries that I probably look up to the most or respect the most the burning skies of the world who they do a a whole remit of different styles and different beers but each one is on a on a level on a certain level which is sort of the the top level really and i and i think that's probably for me one of our big challenges going forward is how do we make people consider our other styles of beers as um 
you know that they what they you know they see a day lager and they're like I want to get that because it's a day lager as opposed to oh it's a day IPA and therefore I need to get it. You need to make more of that Italian pilsner you made a yeah. couple of years ago. Yeah, that yeah. was that was a fantastic lager. Yeah, um, that's really interesting in in how you are a hazy brewery and and mm-hmm. like. Uh, Creating that identity is is a challenge. Just before we wrap this up, I think we should talk about what we're drinking now because yeah. you you that space where you brewed originally, we're now in the in the office of the new brewery, but you kept your original with, with site. The marble tables. With the, yeah, marble <laughs> tables. Very nice. Yeah. And but you instead of when you moved, you kept the old site, you kept the old kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you hired Tobimon mm-hmm. uh, from the Colonel, and you're making mixed fermentation beers mm-hmm. with the dayness, with that softness. Mm. Um, you know why? Who's buying these beers, and why did you decide did you decide to dedicate that space to mixed fermentation? Well, I'd say <clears throat> the answer to who's dr- buying these beers is no one. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. No one. No one no. does. So me and Toby uh, just. You know, we, we we got on really well and just knew him from the industry really and festivals and stuff like that. But um, I think we had a very similar uh, idea of what we wanted to create. And I think for me personally, what we had a very clear vision about the the clean side of stuff in terms of the pails, the IPAs, and now lagers and cast beers that we're making. And then we had a very clear idea about what we wanted to make mixed firm-wise. And that was very much an amalgamation of what me and Toby wanted to do, um, which was uh, low acidity, uh, interesting, funky, but drinkable, uh, not too aggressive, and just really nice, nicely made mixed firm beer, which is delicious, but not over the top and not too um, out there in any way. So not too much fruit or not mm. too much yeast esters or not too much acidity. So that was very much the premise I wanted to do. And from there, I, I'd say the way that I work in general was very much let Toby then go and do his thing. So he's very much run that project. It's been, you know, his project. Um, but we, yeah, we, we, we're really proud of what we've achieved over there. I think it's really great. And the space is amazing. And I do think we will, that will come into fruition at some point. And we've tried stuff like we have a Brett Pills, which is an amazing beer. And it's very easy. It's very simple, but it's, it's delicious. It's like an amazing Pilsner, which is a little bit dry, a little bit funky, a bit lemony. And we put that in cans. We put some other uh, mixed family cans. We're trying to get the price point so that it's, you know, a sort of beer that you could go in and just get a can of. Um, You've also I- done some mega uh, Perry and cider hybrids with yeah. Little Pomona as well. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I just, like, yeah. can't, I can't not mention Little Pomona because yeah. we just had, like, a Perry Pear beer. Yeah, and they're amazing. And we've worked with, in terms of all the mixed firm, we work with local producers, so we've done wine stuff we've done rhubarb we've done strawberries this is the one we're drinking the strawberries the rhubarb saison was amazing yeah yeah so they're all I think they're yeah they're epic beers it's just an interesting thing for us actually is trying to find the market for that and trying to find where we sell that and I think it comes back to us we were so focused on the pails and IPAs and trying to we knew we knew what we were trying to we knew what we were doing there and we knew what the market was and when we started the mix firm, uh, we were probably, we knew exactly what we wanted to create, but we probably didn't know the market. And now it's trying to work out exactly where these beers land. You know, is it more in natural wine bars? Is it more, you know, we need to do more events paired with food? It's trying to work out exactly where that market is for it. And therefore, what is our sales strategy for it? So 
we've got a lot of releases lined up for next year and we don't want to be in a position where we want to hold back beer because we can't sell it through quick enough. But in terms of the actual product, we're really happy with where it's at. I was going to ask, like, like, um, like, who's it for? Why do it? But, like, I'm drinking this. What are we drinking now? What's the name of this beer? Sorry. So this is Quickly Hill. So it's a um, strawberries from Kerry Organic in Worcester. Um, a lot of the beers that are fruited will be our base... Um, we call it. We, we used to call it a simple wheat thing. So it's sort of a saison. It's like a wheat heavy grist with a mixed culture. It doesn't have much saison esters, so saison is probably a bit misleading. But yeah, just a mixed fermentation base, um, which then goes into barrels and then will be macerated on the fruit and then packaged. Mm. And that's our general process. Um, we then for most of these beers we'll also do a second fruiting so what we'll take the beer off of that um strawberries for example take it off so it's like really intense you can see the color it's like you know intensity strawberries kind of smells like haribo and then we'll do we'll, we'll put another batch of like finished beer on top of it and then that the next the seconds will come out a lot more subtle a lot more nuanced it's an area that toby's particularly interested in it's like the second used uh, fruit and you get a lot much more subtle you get more of the base beer coming through and we got plans to can all that as well so a lot of those a lot of those fruited beers will the fruited beers we're doing at the moment they're all in 750s um but a lot of the seconds we're planning to put in 440 mil can that's cool piquettes essentially yeah exactly that's very cool well yeah. they this it's interesting because strawberry is such a difficult ingredient in yeah. beer and but they um they, they are fantastic and they do have that softness low acidity that dayness um I think we could chat for another hour, but let's wrap mm. it up. What's next for Daya? We're about to head into a very difficult winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're dealing with the cost of living crisis. Running a brewery is very challenging. But, mm-hmm. like, uh, how are you planning to to work through, you know, the next three to six months? Yeah, I think it is... There's no getting away from how how difficult it is at the moment, I think, for us. We are... We, 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 we're in a fortunate position I guess because we are established and we run a profitable brewery like month on month but it's getting more and more challenging and the price increases on everything um, the general economic situation just you know the way the world is it's very very challenging and I don't think anyone can get away from that but um, World Cup's coming up <laughs> showing it in the tap room <laughs> showing the World Cup in the tap room and not going to do any anti-World Cup advertising and no 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 maybe we'll have a maybe we'll have a podcast next year about why we should, shouldn't have shown the World Cup indeed <laughs> um, no we, I think we you know everyone's in the same boat to some extent and I think the, the beer industry the craft industry has always had that incredible support amongst breweries consumers etc and I do think that would be a key thing going forward I think for us personally we're, we're trying to focus on you know what we're good at and get the right talking from like a business point of view get the right teams in place to allow those people to do their job properly so in the last couple of years our sales team have been so overstretched and not had you know we need more people in local areas actually talking to their accounts and actually servicing the accounts properly so that's a big focus for us to make sure that we have the right people from DEA talking to the right accounts like Sam in Manchester who's done an amazing job um 
just making sure that we're there and we're, you know, we're representing our brand across the UK as best as possible. Um, we've never exported that much, so we're looking to try and do some more of that. Um, and then tap rooms, obviously a massive focus and making sure everything comes down to product quality. So making sure the beer's good, making sure we have interesting releases online so people want to buy different stuff and then just continuing to hopefully grow in the right sustainable and normal, I'd say, way. We're not going to force stuff. We'll grow with demand and, yeah, try and, be, try and do the best we can. Well, there we go. That was Theo Frain of Dea Brewing Company in Cheltenham. And I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. You know, I recorded that over a year ago, and I think it's still a marker of how much Dea has progressed since they were founded in 2015 and how much they've continued to do so in the 12 months since we sat down in Theo's office and had that chat. And I'm also grateful to Theo for his time and answering some of the tougher questions I posed him in that. If you're still here, and you're still listening, that means you are quite interpellical. And I really appreciate that. So before I say goodbye, I just want to remind you that we are a reader supported publication. That means that we use a service called Patreon to get subscribers. And while we're free to read, and we always will be, because we think great beer and great pubs deserve to be read about by everyone, we can only do what we do which is pay writers, pay our editors, pay our illustrators and pay our photographers to produce the work you find on our website if people subscribe to the magazine. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash pelicalmag, you can sign up for less than the price of a pint a month. Think about that for a second. One pint, four quid. How many pints do you maybe get yourself in a month? Can you give us one of those? And what we will do is we will pay people to write interesting content about drinks and places we love. And hopefully that will get more people into those things as well and get them excited about it and engaged with great beer and pubs. Doesn't that sound like a great way to spend your hard-earned money each month? It's just a little bit. And I hope you can join us because in 2024, I want to actually increase what we pay our contributors. And at the moment, I can't afford to do it. So if you are able to subscribe, you can help me do that. You never know, I might even make a few more podcast episodes and get some more interesting guests on for you as well. Anyway, thanks for listening to me and I will leave you there, but I will be back in a few weeks time to start bringing you our next load of content on this podcast, which is this year's discussions from FineFest, some really interesting panel discussions with some great panellists. So keep a lookout for those. But until then, I've been Matthew Curtis and you've been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. Bye bye.